Book Six, Chapter Six, Part One, of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lea. Book Six, Practice, Chapter Six, Part One, Confession. The heretic was not only a criminal, but a sinner. This imposed on the Inquisition a twofold function, to discover and punish crime, and to save the soul of the sinner. Its position was anomalous. It could scarcely be called a spiritual tribunal, for inquisitors and members of the Suprema, as we have seen, might be laymen. The jurisdiction over heresy was a special delegation from the Holy See, but, although the Inquisitor might excommunicate, when the censure was to be removed, he did not do it himself, but empowered any priest to perform the ceremony. He never received sacramental confessions, or administered the sacrament of penitence, even when a Protestant applied to him to be admitted to the bosom of the Church, a priest was called in to hear the confession and grant absolution. Thus, while exercising spiritual jurisdiction, the inquisitor, even if in holy orders, abstained from exercising spiritual functions. Yet, as a judge, his duties were not purely secular. In theory, the object of the inquisition was the saving of souls. The detection and punishment of heresy were merely a necessary means to that end. The burning of the obstinate impenitent besides avenging the offence to God, was the removal of a gangrened member to preserve the body from infection. The penalties inflicted on the repentant were not punishment, but penance, and he was not a convict, but a penitent. Whatever statement he made during his trial, even in obstinately denying the charges, was a confession, and the penal prison to which he was consigned was a casa de penitencia, or de misericordia. Even denunciations and the evidence of witnesses for the defense were sometimes called confessions. While the distinction was fully recognized between judicial and sacramental confession, and the inquisitor was in no sense a confessor, there was a curious assumption that in the tribunal confession was of a mixed character, partaking of both classes. The whole procedure was directed to induce the accused to confess his errors, to profess repentance, and to beg for mercy. He was adjured by the love of God and his blessed mother to discharge his conscience and save his soul by a full confession as to himself and others, without uttering false testimony as to himself or to them. The so-called advocate, who was furnished to defend him, was instructed to urge him to this, and to explain that the holy office was not like the other tribunals, whose business it was to punish the body. For here, the only object was to cure the soul, and to reunite to the church those who, by their sins, had left the holy congregation of Christians, in violation of their baptismal promises. He should therefore cast aside all thought of that which concerns the body, and think only of his soul, confessing his crimes, so that the holy office could cure his infirmity, 
which was beyond the power of any other judge or confessor. No doubt there were many inquisitors who conscientiously believed that this was the lofty duty to which they were devoted. There was another motive, however, which was not without weight in prompting the earnest and sometimes cruel means resorted to, for it was held that confession, however it might be obtained, cured all defects and irregularities in the trial. An inquisitor, conscious of having overstepped the limits, was therefore doubly anxious to extort from the accused admissions which should exonerate him. Thus, from the first audience to the final reading of the sentence at the auto de fe, the effort of the tribunal was to bring the sinner to repentance, or at least to confession, by adjurations, by misleading promises of mercy, by threats, and, if necessary, by torture. On his way to the stake, the man who had persistently denied his guilt was accompanied by confessors, urging him to admit it and to repent. Similar advantage was taken of the deathbed fears of those who died in prison, when, as we have seen, confessors sent to them were instructed to listen to them only in case they confessed sufficiently to satisfy the adverse testimony. This urgency to induce confession produced the natural result that the unfortunates subjected to it were led, not infrequently, to gratify their judges by admitting whatever they thought necessary to win the favor of the tribunal. This was recognized in a warning issued by the Suprema in 1541 that much caution was required in weighing the truth of confessions because the accused, through malice, were wont to confess against themselves and others in order to obscure the truth. This warning was doubtless needed, but there is little evidence that it was heeded. As a rule, the confession was accepted, provided it was sufficiently criminatory, and, as far as regarded its implication of accomplices, it was used for their conviction. An unexpected feature of the inquisitorial record is the number of espontaneados, of those who, from various motives, voluntarily accused themselves. In 1172 cases occurring in Toledo between 1575 and 1610, there are a hundred seventy of these, or about one in seven. This, of course, is attributable to the assumption that self-denunciation was an evidence of contrition which merited benignity. It is true that, in the earlier period, when Addicts of Grace were published, those who came forward within the term were subjected to reconciliation and heavy molds, their confessions were taken down by notaries to be used against the friends whom they incriminated and against themselves in case of relapse. It is further true that, after the expiration of the term, spontaneous confession did not avert confiscation and such other penance as the inquisitor might impose. In fact, it was virtually no better than if rendered under prosecution. But, after the first fury of persecution, when spontaneous self-denunciation might be considered as arising from conviction and not from fear of accusation by others, it was regarded more mercifully. 
in 1568, we find the Suprema sharply rebuking the tribunal of Barcelona for having condemned to reconciliation and confiscation a French girl of eighteen, and Antoine Caudry, a Frenchman, who had spontaneously confessed to Protestantism, and against whom there was no other evidence. The confiscated property was to be returned to them within nine days, whether or not it was still in the hands of the receiver. The tribunal was also told that it had erred deplorably in the case of Alonso de Montoya, who had spontaneously confessed to having been a renegade when captive in the hands of the Moors, and whom it had thrown into the secret prison and condemned to confiscation, reconciliation, and appearance in an auto de fe with a mitre. Not long after this, the reports of the Tribunal of Toledo present numerous cases of spontaneous self-denunciation, which show that its influence on the sentence varied with the character of the confession and the motives to which the inquisitors attributed it. There was a curious case of twelve Judaizers of Alcázar de Consuegra, who came forward to accuse themselves and implicate twelve others. All twenty-four figured in the great auto de fe of 1591, and all had the full penalty of reconciliation, confiscation, and perpetual prison with the San Benito. On the other hand, Andrés de Palacios, in 1586, presented himself and confessed that, when sailing in the galleys, he had made the acquaintance of an English captain who converted him to all the Lutheran heresies. For six years, and until within a few weeks, he had believed them, but now, with tears, he begged for mercy and for readmission to the church. He was duly put on trial, and was privately reconciled with only some spiritual penances. In the same year occurred the more complicated case of Ursul de la Croix, a French nun in the convent of Santa Margarita at Alcalá de Henares. She confessed to a commissioner there that she had imbibed some of the errors current in her native land. She had deliberately struck a crucifix, and had eaten meat on Fridays. The Suprema examined the confession, and ordered the commissioner to absolve her. Subsequently, she returned to confess that she still held the errors which she had abjured. The Suprema ordered her to be confined in the secret prison, and her trial to proceed, during which she repeated her confession, begged for mercy, and professed her desire to live and die in the Catholic faith. The consulta de fe was puzzled, and, on reference to the Suprema, it ordered her to be secretly reconciled, the San Benito to be at once removed, and her reclusion for a year in a convent cell. As she was a relapsed, and as Lutheranism was the object of special severity, this mercy shows ample consideration for spontaneous confession, but the event proved that the patience of the Inquisition might be tried too far. The unstable mind of the poor creature continued to torment itself, and in 1594 she again accused herself of the same errors. The tribunal reported this to the Suprema, with the statement that she had already been thrice reconciled, and the order came to relax her to the secular arm when she was duly burnt. Thus far, there appears to have been no formal modification of the instructions of 1484, 
which made no concessions to espontaneados except during a term of grace, but evidently each case was treated on its merits. It was not until 1605 that the Suprema decreed that foreigners confessing their errors voluntarily were to be reconciled without confiscation. This did not apply to natives, especially Judaizers and Moriscos, in whose cases the Suprema was consulted, which usually remitted the confiscation. The matter remained in this uncertain condition, with an increasing tendency towards leniency in practice. In trivial cases, such as heretical blasphemy or thoughtless propositions, the offender was reprimanded, warned, and told to confess sacramentally, even though there might have been previous denunciation insufficient to justify arrest. In more serious matters, we are told that the espontaneado was treated with great benignity, even when it appeared that he had come forward through fear of denunciation by accomplices who had been arrested. He was given his house or the city for a prison, unless it was necessary to seclude him from those who would pervert him. If he confessed to formal heresy with belief and intention, it was customary to vote secret reconciliation with the immediate removal of the San Benito and with confiscation, but the Suprema usually remitted the latter or agreed to a composition. In some cases at Santiago in the 17th century, the parties offered a payment nearly equivalent to the value of their property, but the Suprema told them that they could retain it on paying what the tribunal thought proper. Confession, whether spontaneous or after arrest, to be valid in the Inquisition, implied repentance, renunciation of error, and prayer for readmission to Catholic unity. Although judicial, it had this in common with sacramental confession, that it must be full and complete. Every separate heretical act was a sin, and like sins in a confessional, it had to be enumerated. There must be no omission, else the confession was nugatory, ficta and diminuta, and aggravated guilt, for the truly penitent sinner was held to be eager to expose all his sins in order to gain absolution for them, and to betray all his accomplices in order to satisfy his newborn hatred of heresy. Thus the diminuto was as bad as the negativo, for he was still a heretic at heart. The instructions of 1484 treat diminutos as impenitents, to be prosecuted if subsequent testimony shows that they have concealed anything as to themselves or to others. Tried by this standard, the confessions in the early terms of grace were apt to be imperfect, and, in the endeavor to avert the awful consequences of this, it became customary to add to them a protest that, if through lapse of memory facts had been forgotten, the penitent, on remembering them, would come and confess them, or, if testimony was received of matters omitted, he now accepted it as true, and asked penance for them. These protests availed little. In the case of Mencia, wife of Diego Gonzalez, before the tribunal of Guadalupe in 1485, she added this to her confession, but additional incriminating evidence was given by other penitents. She was duly prosecuted, 
and the tribunal apologized for not sending her to the stake in view of her youth, her tearful contrition, and her heartfelt desire to return to the bosom of the church, wherefore she escaped with perpetual prison. Beatriz Núñez was less fortunate. She was reconciled on January 13, 1485, in the time of grace, after presenting a long confession, including all the recognized Jewish practices. On July the 1st, she was arrested on the strength of evidence relating to acts running back for twenty years, embracing details that happened not to be contained in her confession, although it had included a protest admitting all that she did not remember. The tribunal held that her confession had been diminuta, that consequently it was feigned, and she was an impenitent heretic, so she was burnt alive on July the 31st. Similar was the fate of Andres Gonzalez, parish priest of San Martin de Talavera, who was reconciled in the time of grace, but, when imprisoned on November the 12th, 1485, made a fuller confession, imploring mercy in terms betraying the utmost despair. There were but two adverse witnesses, evidently prisoners on trial, whose evidence was simply confirmatory of the confessions, but it sufficed. There seems to have been some delay in getting a bishop and an abbot to degrade him, for he was not burnt until August the 17th, 1486. Now, in all these cases, the confessions had amply admitted Judaism, and the subsequent testimony was but surplusage in detail. This cruel practice goes far to explain the great number of burnings in the early period, and it long continued to furnish victims. In 1531, the tribunal of Toledo condemned to reconciliation, confiscation, and prison an old woman named Teresa de Lucena. For nearly fifty years she had been living a Catholic life, but in 1484 she had been reconciled on a confession which subsequent testimony showed had omitted some Jewish observances and had not named every one whom she had seen practice them. This demand for an absolutely perfect confession exceeded that of the confessional, where forgotten sins are charitably held to be included. It explains why inquisitors labored so strenuously and often so cruelly to make the penitent remember and declare everything testified against him, what they termed satisfying the evidence. It is true that Simancas argues that defective memory may render confession imperfect, that he who admits himself to have been a heretic includes all heretical customs, and that the rigor of the law should not be visited on those who return to the Catholic faith, while Rojas condemns the severity of those who hold that a penitent, not stating the full term of his heresy, should be burned. Yet the old sternness was held to be in vigor throughout the eighteenth century, and the only concession of the authorities seems to be that, if the penitent omits in his confession anything worthy of relaxation or any accomplices, when these have been proved by witnesses, he may have the chance of purging himself by torture. Yet this ferocity had become rather academic than practical. As early as 1570, the Suprema ordered that, in all cases of diminution, the matters suppressed or omitted 
were to be recorded in the process, submitted to the consulta de fe, and then, without taking action, to be sent to it for its decision. This can only have been for the purpose of mitigating the execution of the law without modifying it in principle. It remained nominally enforced, but I have met in the later periods with no case in which its extreme rigor was enforced. It was not an infrequent occurrence that reconciled penitents were found, by testimony in later trials, to have made imperfect confessions. Apparently, a careful watch for this was maintained, and, when it was discovered, they were tried again, but in the second half of the seventeenth century the sentences were remarkably mild. A few years of prison and San Benito, and exile, or possibly, a parading in Vergüenza. With the recrudescence of persecution in the first half of the eighteenth century, there was greater severity, irremissible prison and San Benito for life, and, in a Barcelona case of 1723, a woman had two hundred lashes in addition. Closely connected with Diminucio was the confession of acts accompanied by a denial of intention. As we have seen, the Inquisition relied for proof on acts or words from which heretical belief was inferred, it being assumed that, after baptism, any one practicing Judaic or Muslim rites or customs was an apostate. Many of these were wholly indifferent in themselves, and their significance depended on the intention with which they were performed, so that it was not unusual for the accused to admit the acts while disclaiming knowledge of their religious character. He might confess avoidance of pork, but allege that it disagreed with him. He might acknowledge to washing hands or changing linen, but assert that it was for the sake of cleanliness. He might not deny uttering an heretical proposition, but say that it was thoughtless or jocular. As human intentions are inscrutable, in such cases resort was inevitable to the universal solvent of judicial doubt, torture, at least in the later period. In the earlier time it was more in consonance with the swift justice than habitual to condemn him. Such acts, it was argued, did not admit of doubt. They were in themselves sufficient proof, and the accused was not to be allowed the privilege of torture. In the later period, the authorities are not wholly unanimous, for the shades of guilt and the collateral circumstances varied so infinitely that a definite rule was difficult to frame. In general, it may be summed up as admitted that, for heretical acts under the law, no plea of non-intention could be entertained, and that the offender must be relaxed. But in practice he had the benefit of torture. If he succumbed in it, he was reconciled with confiscation, the galleys, and perpetual prison. If he endured it without confession, according to the judicial logic of the age, he was not acquitted, but was punished less severely for the suspicion. For words and opinions and heretical propositions, if serious, he was to be tortured on intention, but not for lesser offenses, in which the appropriate penalty would be less grievous than the infliction of torture. Yet one writer admits the use of torture when intention is denied in the widely current proposition that simple fornication is no sin. When, in these minor cases, torture was used, 
if, according to the legal phrase, it was endured sufficiently to purge the testimony, it became customary to suspend the case or to acquit the accused. In the previous chapter, there are one or two instructive cases as to the danger of construing Judaic observances as implying heretical intention. In the wider sphere of propositions, an illustrative instance is that of the Augustinian Pedro Retorni, tried in 1601 at Toledo for denying the papal power to release souls from purgatory. He admitted it, but denied intention, asserting that he had only used the phrase in the course of an argument. The consulta de fe voted for abjuration de levi and a sharp reprimand, but the Suprema ordered that he should be threatened with torture up to the point of stripping him in the torture chamber. He endured this without confessing, and the sentence of the consulta de fe was executed. One of the most essential requisites to completeness of confession was the denunciation of all accomplices, that is, of all whom the penitent knew to be heretics or addicted to heretical practices. This, as we have seen, was required of all who came in under edicts of grace, and in the instructions of the 1500s, the inquisitor was ordered, when anyone confessed, to examine him exhaustively as to what he knew of his parents, brothers, kindred, and all other persons, and this evidence to be used against them was to be entered in registers apart from the personal confession. There was usually little hesitation on the part of the penitent to incriminate his family and friends, for they might, for all he knew, be themselves under trial, and informing on him, so that any reticence on his part would convict him of being a diminuto with all its fateful consequences. The information thus obtained was registered with alphabetical indexes, so that the tribunals obtained a mass of evidence against those who were Jews or Moors at heart, which largely explains the rapid extension of its activity. The value attached by the Inquisition to this source of information is expressed by the Suprema in its remonstrance on February 23, 1595, to Clement VIII, against a jubilee indulgence. One of its chief arguments was that, as heretics were all allied and known to each other, the principal means of detecting them was through the confessions of those who were converted, while the absolution obtainable through the indulgence would release them from pressure, and this mode of extirpating heresy would be lost. In the formulas compiled for interrogating the accused, we find special stress laid on making those who confess enumerate all who had joined with them in belief and worship, or whom they knew to be heretics. These were recorded, one by one, the penitent being required to state all details concerning them, including personal descriptions, so that they could be tracked, or, if there were several individuals of the same name, error could be avoided in identifying them. Any omissions in this exposed the penitent to severe punishment. In the Seville Auto de Fe of July 5, 1722, there appeared Melchor de Molina, who had been reconciled for Judaism in 1720. From evidence gathered in subsequent trials, it appeared that he had not denounced all whom he knew. He was prosecuted anew, and for this, as a falter and protector of accomplices, 
his temporary prison was now made perpetual and irremissible. End of Book 6, Chapter 6, Part 1